Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This week, we will review the first season of Amazon's billion-dollar gamble to try to be the one streamer to rule them all. Plus... I'm Jeff Braun, and like a lot of you, I watched The Watcher on Netflix this week, so we'll talk about that. We'll also tee up a spooky anthology series coming out this coming week from Guillermo del Toro. And I continued the scary movie theme this week, checking out something I've never seen. I'll tell you what I think of John Carpenter's The Thing and what I think of the new scary movie, Halloween Ends. As we mentioned, the billion-dollar gamble, The Rings of Power, wrapped up its first season on Amazon Prime this past Friday. Evil does not sleep. It waits. There's far more at stake here than just our lives. Fight with me. For all Middle-earth. What are you? I am no god. At least not yet. You will be known at last for who you truly are. For you are Lord Sauron. If Sauron has returned, then the Southlands are in grave danger. The Southlands are but the beginning. We are on the cusp of crafting a new kind of power. The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, now streaming only on Prime Video. Years of expectations reduced to eight episodes. As mentioned, this is a billion-dollar production. They spent $250 million a few years ago just to get the rights. They spent a reported $465 million on the first season alone and are committing to a minimum total of a billion dollars, although if they spent that much in the first season, I'm guessing that number is going to go up since it's a five-season commitment. Although they're not going to have to rebuild the sets and costumes and all that stuff. If you are listening to this show, The Couch Potatoes, there's a good chance you know all about The Lord of the Rings. But if you don't, there's look, there's just too much to get into for a full explanation. It's fantasy nerd stuff, and it's one of the most popular and beloved franchises in the world. The Lord of the Rings told the story of the finding of the Ring of Power, the one ring to rule them all. There are several rings of power scattered across the various races, three for the elves, seven for the dwarves, and nine for the race of men. But in secret, the Dark Lord Sauron forged the One Ring, so the Lord of the Rings tells the story of the quest to destroy the ring so Sauron can finally be vanquished. That story, the books, the movies, were set in the Third Age of Middle-earth. The Rings of Power is set in the Second Age. It tells the story of how the Rings of Power were forged and how Sauron completes his rise to power, and really that's all you need to know in the grand scheme of things. The tricky thing with the Rings of Power was even though they got the rights to the Lord of the Rings and the Appendices, which is an add-on to the Lord of the Rings books, which discusses much of the history of Middle-earth, the Tolkien estate did not grant Amazon free reign to do whatever they wanted. They were told they could only adapt a story in the Second Age, and they were told they could not alter the basic story. Sauron deceives everyone into forging the Rings of Power. Numenor falls. Sauron rises in power. 
that's it. Oh, by the way, Numenor, it's a distant land where the greatest of the race of men, humans, live. They're blessed with long life. They live for hundreds of years, and they uh, live in a pretty cool place. But they were allowed to add new characters, change certain things as they saw fit to tell their story. As long as the basic fundamentals were respected, that the finish line is not altered in any way, so it leads into the events we see in the Third Age. And there's also been a lot of talk about how they've added diversity to the cast with various people of color. There's been a lot of talk about how a lot of the lore has been changed. And a lot of fans are not happy. There's a small but super vocal minority here that's review bombing the show and they hate it and they're being described as toxic fans, whatever. As far as the lore goes, I don't care if they had to make any changes. I mean, heck, the movies, the original movies changed a lot about the books. They added things that never happened i.e. it's an adaptation. Any book that is adapted for the screen, well, the story gets changed. J.R.R. Tolkien's son, Christopher, even said rather negatively that Peter Jackson turned the story into an action thriller for teenagers. But we all revere those movies. So why the negativity on this show changing the lore? Said at the beginning of the season, I didn't care about the added diversity. I don't care about any changes they make to the lore. I will judge the show on whether or not it sucks. And I think it's fair to have super high expectations for this. Like when you have the audacity, the unmitigated gall to tell a new Lord of the Rings story and drop a billion dollars on it, it had better be great. Not just good, great. And as far as I'm concerned... This was mediocre at best. Jeff, what did you think of season one of The Rings of Power? I thought it was a pretty good season, but yeah, I don't think it was a great season uh, by any stretch. It was a lo- quite a bit. Was, the middle was the problem, as so often is the case with these uh, streaming shows. It started strong, then it got dull in the middle, and then picked up again at the end. The mystery about the bad guy uh, worked for me. There's some great red herrings along the way with that. And then in hindsight, you know, should have seen the big reveal coming, but I'm kind of dumb. So I didn't, uh, the mystery about the stranger that the Harfoots found, I called that right away. So I was very proud of myself for that, but I think most people probably called that because, uh, just the way that person looks was pretty much a giveaway right there. I, I love middle earth. I enjoyed returning there. I ran bopping around from various, uh, parts of the, of the, continent or whatever you want to call the landmass that it is at least at the beginning and then you know things sort of all collapse into each other most of the characters sort of ended up in the same location obviously not perfect hopefully they can course correct a bit for the next season and more you know quickly arrive at the point of things after like episodes three and four and five we found ourselves wondering like what even is the point of this show uh they're just dragging stuff out for no real reason except to stall for more episodes or whatever i, I actually didn't mind the elves in this i usually find them dreadfully boring i mentioned uh, when we first covered the show that when i rewatched the lord of the rings trilogy as soon as uh the elves show up i usually sort of hit the fast forward button for a little bit i thought the dwarves were interesting i always like uh, visiting uh, the dwarfs in the mountains although i guess i never knew they were scottish they seem very scottish in this show but i think it's funny in how all of these fantasy shows everyone is at the very least vaguely british for unknown reasons i, I guess we just think it's supposed to sound like it's more highfalutin if they put on a british accent i wonder what the people in england think about that 
I really like the Harfoots. Uh, it just reinforced my feeling that the Lord of the Ro- Lord of the Rings show that I really want would be like a half-hour show set in Hobbiton, where there's a detective Hobbit that solves very low-stake mysteries, like <laughs> who's been stealing the gaffer's carrots and why do pumpkins grow bigger on the Proudfeet's farm than anywhere else? That sort of thing. And then at the end of every episode, there's a party at the little pub in Hobbiton. Make that show, Bezos. Come on, you got the money. Make something fun like that. Uh, this show looked amazing, like you said. All that money. I I wonder though, four hundred sixty-five million dollars for these eight episodes. That seems high because, I mean, it looked really good. It didn't look like it was that good. And it's it's only eight episodes covers, what, like seven hours worth of material? I think most of them are, I guess well, most of them probably actually ran over an hour. So eight hours worth of stuff. But still, it seems like it shouldn't have cost that much. So, but, you know, it helped. Even when the show was a little boring, the just looking at it would kind of win me over and keep my eyes on the screen. Overall, I thought it was fine. The beginning, terrific. The rest, just fine. Like I said, good, not great. A missed opportunity. Again, hopefully they can course correct a bit for the next season, although with the special effects and everything, might already be too late for them to change anything in season two. Not sure how long a lead time they would need to do all that work, but I will keep my fingers crossed. So, yeah, like you said, uh, good but not great and we were hoping for something a little bit better but i didn't i didn't mind it i i got in casually it's uh i won't watch it every year like i like to do with the lord of the rings watch every year or two sort of thing that still remains you know among the greatest film cinematic achievements of all time and this is not going to make uh top 10 lists probably for this well maybe for this year but certainly not for the decade and certainly not for all time that's right and as far as the 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 british accents and the scottish accent stuff goes i think um, JR, well, in this particular example, because you're right, in almost in virtually every fantasy show, they're always British or Scottish or European or whatever. I think a lot of that is because it's, I think a lot of these productions are probably at least partially shot in Europe, but um, Middle Earth, I believe, J.R.R. Tolkien created it kind of, he sort of saw it as a mythology for England. So I think that was always part of uh, his goal, which is uh, one of the reasons why. A lot of the characters he described were, you know, he would describe them as fair-skinned because that was primarily the world that he lived in. So that's why a lot of the so-called toxic fans lost their minds when they added people of color. But like I said, I don't care about that. Um, like when the, the Latino elf showed up. I can't remember the name of the the actor in, you know, in real life, but uh, I was happy to see him in the cast because I've seen him in some shows before and he's really good. And he's actually going to be appearing in another show that I'm going to talk about a little bit later on. But uh, I thought, yeah, I thought the first two episodes were terrific. They looked amazing. The visuals were sublime. The money was on display in full force. We got to see parts of Middle Earth come to life in ways we'd only imagined. I liked the characters. I liked the stories. I was encouraged. And then episodes, you mentioned episodes three through five. I'm going to go one further and say episodes three through seven happened. They had good parts. Getting to visit Numenor, for example, was amazing. It looked so good. I was blown away. I always wondered, what is Numenor? What does it look like? But I just the dialogue in this show was so clunky. The plotting was meandering and slow. And our protagonist, Galadriel, an elf who's lived for hundreds if not thousands of years, you'd think she'd be wise, and to an extent she was, but she was also petulant and angry, impulsive, and I just I found her annoying. And some of the things that happen are just so dumb, like uh, a volcano explodes and almost no one dies. Like, come on. And the Harfoots, a.k.a. the Hobbits, can't call them that because of the rights issues. 
I found them like boring, 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 useless characters. And it was eight episodes essentially to set up the two primary primary mysteries you talked about. Who is the stranger? He fell from the sky. Is he Sauron? And if he's not Sauron, who is? And we're pointed in two directions for that possibility. So I, I actually didn't mind that component. But the Harfits were introduced basically to help along the stranger story. And their presence just felt largely pointless to me. And super annoying because we're supposed to care about them. But we don't. At least I didn't. But the finale. The finale was decent. It had some really nifty events that didn't just look cool, but really advanced the story. And we did get to learn the identities of the two mystery characters, and I liked how it ended. So, yeah, I, I think I'm going to agree with you. I, I thought the season was good, not great, and um, it had a lot of problems, and I really hope that they work on the actual writing component of this show because they were so focused on the visuals that they I think they almost forgot to tell a, a good story but now that we at least have some direction maybe they'll, that'll help them tighten things up a little bit so I'm only going to give it two and a half couch cushions out of five it gets a passing grade but for me it was a disappointment it wasn't horrible and maybe after a rewatch I'll like it more but uh, like you I'm just going to leave this one for now in a moment we got to tell you about the new big movie that came out in theaters this past weekend, although, was it really that big? You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brad, he's Jeff, we are The Couch Potatoes. Last week I told you about a bunch of scary movies that I revisited or watched for the first time. This week I saw a brand new scary movie. Just came out in theaters last week. Halloween Ends. He killed my daughter. But tonight, I will kill him. Come and get me. All right, so this was interesting, but ultimately disappointing. And that result is reflected in the box office. The first one in this new trilogy that came out back in 2018, $76 million opening. The second one, Halloween Kills, which came out last year, $49 million. And this third and final chapter, $40 million. Not a bad opening, but almost less than half of the first one. And the first one had the best reviews, 79% for the first, 39% for the second, and around 40% for this third one. And uh, it did not go down the road I was expecting. It turned out to be a much deeper film, using a new character to explore the nature of evil. And uh, I liked that this movie tried something different, and the new actor being showcased was excellent. But my buddy, who is a Halloween slash Michael Myers super fan, lunatic, Kent, I know you didn't care for it all that much, and I bumped into someone else after the movie who's heavy into this stuff. He didn't care for it either. He said they took their shot and they missed. It is worth noting that Jamie Lee Curtis was once again fantastic in her final appearance as Laurie Strode, although when is she ever not fantastic? She's one of the best. Also, they did not need a trilogy. Had they only done the one movie, maybe that would have been best, but they definitely did not need three movies. They could have condensed Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends into one film and cut out all kinds of crap and just told a lean story. Halloween Kills could have been the first half of the movie, continuing the immediate story from that first film, 
And then they could have had Michael disappear halfway through the movie and then do the four-year time jump. And the second half of the movie explains his reemergence and his final showdown with Laurie. I think that would have been a way more satisfying experience. Like, again, I quite liked how they tried something different with his final film, but it ultimately felt a little hollow, and it just didn't feel like a Halloween movie. This trilogy was supposed to be Laurie Strode versus Michael Myers, and then they go down this weird road for the third movie, almost like they were trying to honor the original movies by doing something weird and different like they did for Season of the Witch for Halloween 3. And even my buddy knew something was up when they dared to use blue font in the opening credits instead of the usual yellow. I will say, though, the final showdown, I thought it was satisfying. And it even plays with the horror trope of, oh no, he's going to get away again. How is he still alive? But there's no question at the end that this is over. So that scene in particular was emotional and thrilling. But overall, swing and a miss. Two and a half couch cushions out of five for Halloween ends. And I guess now we wait for the... Uh, eventual reboot slash remake because the character like michael myers like at this point you gotta think he's like batman oh yeah he'll be back ben affleck will play him someday <laughs> can you imagine ben affleck playing michael myers <laughs> <laughs> oh that'd be great uh, a bit later in the show, I'm going to tell you about an older scary movie that i finally watched for the first time but up next what did Jeff watch on Netflix? It's the number one show this week in Canada, and I'm going to tell you about a new one coming to Netflix next week. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff, he's Brett, and the hot new show on Netflix this past week, which ended up being a little controversial thanks to the ending, was something called The Watcher. Dearest new neighbor at 657 Boulevard. Allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. Do you know the history of the house? I've been put in charge of watching you. This message will not be the last. I am the Watcher. We moved out here because we wanted to feel safe. Opposites happening. Never felt more unsafe in my life. I don't think you're in danger. This is just a prank. It's not a prank. You need to sell, 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 sell. Who are you? I'm Batman. No, uh, it's not Batman. <laughs> 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 the Watcher stars Naomi Watts and Bobby Cannavale and a host of others. It's seven episodes, and I tore through them faster than I've torn through anything since Squid Game last year. I'll be spoiler-free and get super vague about the ending a little later. I normally wouldn't even mention the ending at all in something like this, but most of the comments I've seen on social media this week have been people complaining about the ending, so we've got to talk about it just a little bit. The, the Watcher begins with Naomi and Bobby buying this huge house in New Jersey. They're looking to get out of New York City and move their family. They have a 15-year-old daughter and what looks to be about a 12-year-old son to a small bedroom community called Westfield. And this house is gigantic. Immediately, their various neighbors show up 
And they're all weirdos. There's a couple across the street played by character actress Margot Martindale and Richard Kind. Beside them is a, a brother and a sister played by Mia Farrow and Terry Kinney. We also get to see a couple of folks at the open house right at the beginning. That'll come into play in later episodes. And we meet the town's useless police chief played by Christopher McDonald, a.k.a. Shooter McGavin from Happy Gilmore. And an incredibly driven local realtor played by Jennifer Coolidge. It's an impressive cast. The neighbors, like I said, are very strange and they all start having really angry arguments with Cannavale telling him they shouldn't have moved in and they should just they all just go from like zero to 103 seconds flat it's really bizarre but later in other episodes they'll act you know normal or semi-normal so it, it just it doesn't quite track the show's just trying to make everyone a plausible suspect I get that but some of these characters just don't make sense through the course of the show like if you had a neighbor and you saw them outside would you just start screaming f-bombs at them on day one of course not it's just bizarre uh, and then the letters start arriving vaguely threatening letters to the new homeowners signed by the watcher and over the seven episodes Naomi and Bobby try to figure out who's sending the letters while literally everyone in town acts suspicious the whole time they hire a private detective she finds out all sorts of history about the town and the house and the plot thickens meanwhile Bobby Cannavale starts to lose it over the course of the series he's obsessed with finding the watcher and of course that uh, you know puts a strain on his marriage and the family life so he's unraveling as is the mystery the show has a it's Tries to have this creepy vibe to it at first, but I found that evaporated very quickly because just of how silly a lot of it was. I mean, if everything's trying to be creepy, then nothing is creepy, that sort of thing. But I must say, the show went down very easy. Like I said, I tore through it. I watched it in less than 48 hours, all seven episodes, and I almost never binge anything anymore. And after the fifth episode, uh, my girlfriend and I were out for a drive, and she had also watched the first five, and we had a long animated discussion about our various theories of who might be the watcher and that was a lot of fun and that is the joy of the show and if you watched it and you hated the ending uh, remember how much fun the journey was as you mulled over the possibilities that is the reason to watch this show it's not particularly good tv but it's pretty engaging and you have to come at it from a sort of a it's not the destination it's the journey kind of an angle Although even if you do, you might not like the ending. I can't really explain further without risking giving anything away. And of course, a show like this where the whole point of the show seems to be finding out who the watcher is, you know, you, you it's hard to say you should look at it as a, enjoying the destination and not the journey because the show itself is just pointing towards that destination. So it, they, they've not done themselves any favors with the show, which would probably explain why people are freaking out on the internet. Also, if you're going to watch the show, don't type in into Google. Do not type uh, the watcher into the search bar of any social media uh, feed you're on or whatever, because you will be spoiled. The spoilers are out there. Galore. I, I'll say if you hate, if you find that you hate the finales of most shows, and I know there are a lot of people like that out there, don't bother watching because this is just going to upset you. Uh, I literally haven't seen anyone who liked this ending. So if you got very mad at the end of Lost or The Sopranos or Game of Thrones or How I Met Your Mother, steer clear. This is not for you. If you did like those shows and you still like them, even though you did not really care for the very last episode after watching for a decade, then The Watcher can be a lot of fun. And I would uh, you know, recommend it, especially if you and someone you love is watching it and you guys can talk about it it's it's fun in that regard so i can see why people a lot of people watch the watcher why it's the number one show on netflix but i can also see unfortunately why people are so upset at the ending and uh, um if you don't plan to watch the show maybe you know watch the first 20 minutes and then 
go to the last episode and just watch the last half hour to find out why people are, are upset about it. There's something to be said for that, too. That's a lot of fun as well. But uh, So it was an experience watching The Watcher. It's uh, certainly not a great show. There you have it. I'll give it uh, two couch cushions out of five for The Watcher. 44% on Rotten Tomatoes as well. Uh, but now I'm really curious after what you've had to say because I am not familiar with the the real life story that this show is based on, it's uh, based on a true story published in the 2018 New York Magazine article, "The Haunting of a Dream House," and it details how uh, this couple purchased their dream home in June 2014. I don't know how much it. I don't know that story, so I don't know what happens or supposedly happens in the Watcher. So I can go into this fresh. Go into it fresh. Do not look up anything about anything about anything about it. And now we want to tell you about how Netflix has a new show debuting on Tuesday, and it's an unusual rollout for them because they always drop everything at once, but this one's debuting over four nights. It's from, as Netflix describes him, the maestro of horror, Guillermo del Toro, and it's called Cabinet of Curiosities. Picture your mind as a cabinet. where you lock up your darkest thoughts and deepest fears. What would happen if you opened that cabinet for the world to see? We are about to find out. This is one of those nightmare specials, the kind you never get to the bottom of. Here's the description. The maestro of horror, Guillermo del Toro, presents eight blood-curdling tales of horror. This anthology of sinister stories is told by some of today's most revered horror creators, including the directors of The Babadook, Splice, Mandy, and many more. And I ended that clip where I did because that was kind of my takeaway from the first three episodes. They all just sort of end, and they leave you wanting more. But you won't get more. You won't get answers but you might get nightmares. So it debuts Tuesday on Netflix with two episodes, two more on Wednesday, two more on Thursday, and two more on Friday. And the Couch Potatoes are lucky enough and thankful for it to get preview access to a lot of Netflix content. So I checked out the first two epi- or first three episodes now, Lot 36, Graveyard Rats, and each night will have a theme. So the theme for that first night was Scavengers, and then uh, this third episode is called The Autopsy. Can't remember what the theme is for that one. Whatever. I'll tell you more next week. But um, So Lot 36 is about a guy who buys the contents of a storage locker. He's not prepared for the evil that lies within. It presents a really interesting mystery and uh, was pretty cool. Graveyard Rats, based on a short story from 1936, and I believe this is also set in the 30s. It's about a caretaker who digs up graves and robs people of their valuables to try to pay off a gambling debt, but problem is he's competing with an army of rodents who live in a complex web of tunnels in the graveyard, and he has to go. eventually has to go in to try to collect his prize. And the third episode is about an autopsy involving a mystery in a mine shaft that may or may not involve extraterrestrial life. And so far, I am loving this show. Love it, love it. It hasn't been nightmare scary for me, and I like how each of the three episodes all sort of, you know, like the first half, the first three quarters, 
it's mostly just a mystery. And then all three of them go insane at the end. And in many cases, it's quite gory. So not for necessarily for the squeamish, but fascinating stories. And I'm hooked on this show. So um, I'm curious to know, Jeff Braun, did you watch any of the Cabinet of Curiosities? I did. I watched the first two episodes. There are a few reasons that I'll deliberately watch something, you know, scary or freaky. And one of them is Guillermo del Toro. He's a fantastic filmmaker. And even though he always gets too gross for my liking, his movies are always so good that I can't not watch them. But, you know, he can't help himself. He likes the blood and guts. So I watched the first two, even though I knew it was going to get a little gnarly. And thank you, Brett, for the heads up texts that you sent me about how gnarly the episodes were. But I pushed through because they weren't that long. So I thought, okay, if it's only a half hour or 40 minute thing i can make it through this and they were great i love the format you know del toro introduces each episode like uh like hitch did at the beginning of alfred hitchcock presents a tv show so which i'm sure he loved and it's probably the reason why he did it it's like a collection of short stories which you know by design must get to the point quickly and as we see in the first two episodes the main characters can be bad guys as you can and you can root for their comeuppance which is you know it's easier to do that in a short story than over a season for example the tim blake nelson character in the first episode a one and done is enough with that guy. You wouldn't want to watch him as the lead character for eight episodes of anything. And the abrupt endings I thought were fun too. Just boom, we're done. We haven't spent enough time with anyone to really care about giving them a proper send-off or even exploring the consequences of what just happened. We can just end the episode right when uh, something freaky happens or whatever. It's fun. It's different. They're not really too gross. I didn't find the first one really wasn't any worse than a Stranger Things episode, which is what you literally texted me before I watched it. Uh, the second one was a good deal freakier, and I'm also claustrophobic, so so that didn't help because uh, it's set in the graveyard. Um, I enjoyed the episodes. I often feel like I'm left out in October because I don't go in for the horror movies. So it was nice to watch a couple of Halloween-y things the last couple of weeks with this and the Marvel Night of the Werewolf the week before. Mostly, though, I am looking forward to re-watching Adam Sandler's Hubie Halloween, which is my go-to Halloween movie these last couple of years ever since that comedy came out. So I, I enjoyed the first two episodes of The Cabinet of Curiosities, but I, I think I'm done with the show for now. Yeah, episode three is pretty gross, so watch out for that. And up next, I'm going to tell you about a classic scary movie, I've never watched, but I finally watched it this week. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett, he's Jeff, we are The Couch Potatoes. I continued with the scary movie theme this week. I decided to stick with one that I've never watched. This week, I watched at long last, from 1982, John Carpenter's The Thing. 100,000 years ago, it found its way into our galaxy. frozen wasteland of Antarctica. It could not escape. Now the men of Station 4 have made a monumental discovery. An alien creature had frozen, but not to death. the warmest place to hide. 
Sounds fun, doesn't it? There have been three Thing movies. The original from 1951, The Thing from Another World. John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982, and a version in 2011 that serves as a prequel to that 82 version. I'd never seen the original, nor the 82 version, only the 2011 version, and I barely remember it, which means it sucked. I'd always wanted to watch that 82 version, though. Just never did. Finally watched it this week. It's on Crave. My thoughts in a moment. First, after watching the movie, I watched a couple videos on YouTube about it, and I was fascinated to learn that the movie was a critical and commercial failure when it came out. Everyone thought it was too gory. Over time, though, it became a beloved cult classic and has gone on to be seen as one of the best horror movies ever made. What's it about? Well, we're introduced to an American science outpost in Antarctica. A handful of dudes hanging out in the deep, deep cold. What are they studying? Who cares? We quickly meet the cast, led by Kurt Russell and the, as the pilot McCready. He is young but wise, hot-headed but well-tempered, likes to drink, and has a handsome beard. Doesn't take long for them to learn that a Norwegian camp nearby made a startling discovery, an alien ship which crashed in the ice long before any of us were born. The Norwegians dug something up they shouldn't have. The Thing. Turns out the Thing is an alien life form that seeks to absorb us and imitate us. It infects our bodies from the inside out, and when it reveals itself, it is disgusting and horrifying. Hence, the gory effects. They are used sparingly through the film, but when they are used, holy macaroni, they are vicious. Jeff, if there was ever a movie for you to avoid, this is it. But while the gore is front and center, the main thing that works so well here is the claustrophobic setting, the tight quarters, the desolate location. They're in the middle of nowhere in the deep cold with no way out, and this thing has invaded and is slowly picking them apart. So they start to break down as a group, they start to turn on each other, and then every so often, the thing emerges and the gore is spectacular and horrific. Now, it opens up the debate on how much gore is too much, and when is it appropriate? Sometimes gore helps to advance and enhance the scare. The gore is what is scary. Sometimes it's used for fun, like in a, you know, slasher sequel. We're not there for a good story. We're there for the gore. Like in Freddy vs. Jason, when I saw that movie, I laughed at the kills because that's what I wanted. I was there to see that. Creative, humorous, and gory kills. But in a movie like this, much like in the movie Alien, the gore worked because it was just so jarring. Body horror, they call it. The idea that something can invade your body and completely destroy it. And in that case, we kind of need to see the gore. And even now, 40 years later, I found myself thinking, holy crap, this is gross and awful. And it was because the thing never took any sort of shape, just random grossness. It was scary because, like, just imagine yourself in that location, trapped by the cold and this disgusting monster organism taking everyone out one by one, and you're faced with the task of containing it or else. So I enjoyed it a lot. Not for the faint of heart, not for the squeamish, but if you don't mind some heavy gore and you like a sexy Kurt Russell beard, then watch The Thing. Now I understand why it's a classic four couch cushions out of five and keith david is in the supporting cast he is a badass as always next week jeff's going to have a review for you for black adam i'm brett he's jeff we are the couch potatoes remember if it requires getting up off the couch don't bother <laughs>